Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Jacques R. Lacroix, MD, about the article, Survey on Stated Transfusion Practices in Pediatric Intensive Care Units, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in June 2014. Dr. Lacroix is Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Montreal and Chair of Acute Care Access at Saint-Justine Hospital in Montreal, Quebec. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Lacroix. Well, thank you, Dr. Parker, for this great opportunity. Um, the, the issue of transfusion triggers for a red blood cell transfusion has been widely discussed over the past 15 years or so since the, the TRICS trial in adults and then followed by your TRIPICU trial in children. What do we know about transfusion practices before these trials were carried out? Well, just before answering the last question, I just want to uh, remember to uh, uh, listeners, uh, those who are listening to us, that uh, the history about uh, tra- red blood cell transfusion uh, to uh, uh, severely ill patients is a little bit strange. Uh, some experts in the 40s just took the decision that we must keep the hemoglobin level over four, uh, uh, four milligrams per deciliter. There was no science behind that at all. And we just keep on using these uh, uh, this, this thresholds for years and for years. What happened is that uh, Paul Hébert uh, uh, was um, a fellow in Vancouver and started to work on transfusion. Talk about that uh, question, about the threshold uh, that we should use for our patients in ICU uh, and what hemoglobin level we must maintain. Uh, And this uh, was done uh, with members of the Canadian Critical Care Trials groups in the 90s. And right from the start with Paul Hébert, uh, we make a decision that Paul will work on these questions in adults and I will work on these questions in kids. So uh, what do we know about transfusion before the TRIC trial, which was published in the New England in 1999, and TRIPQ in 2007? Uh, actually, we, lo- we know that, uh, for example, the, there was a huge variation in the stated and the observed practice for, uh, 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 to give you an example, for the same patient, exactly the same patient, uh, some intensivists will uh, 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 give a transfusion if their hemoglobin level just falls be- below uh, uh, 13 grams per deciliter, while others will wait until it drops below 7 grams per deciliter. Uh, so uh, the, 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 the um, practice uh, was... Uh, uh, very different from one pay, uh, intensivist to the other and from one critical care unit to the other. And the big surprise was that the outcome was not different at all. So this is why we believe, Paul and myself, that maybe we are were giving too much uh, transfusion uh, at that time. I, I will dare to add something else. Uh, up to the uh, 80s, transfusion, red blood cell transfusion were considered very safe. And uh, uh, then comes the uh, history with uh, the AIDS and hepatitis. Uh, And then uh, in the 90s, we discovered that uh, maybe uh, red blood cell transfusion also modulate the uh, inflammatory process of our patients. So uh, it it seems to Paul and myself that um, maybe transfusion are not so good for our patients. Maybe, for example, uh, red blood cell transfusion can... uh, 
just be a second insult in patients, in our patients who already have a systemic inflammatory response syndrome. So that's why we start in adults the trick study and in kids the TRIPQ study. The basic hypothesis in both studies was that a lower threshold will give uh, will result in the same outcomes in our uh, patients. Uh, this is what we, we know before the TRIPQ tri uh, uh, trial was done. And this trial, trial tell, told us that, uh, yes, a threshold of 7 gram per deciliter is as safe, if not safer, than an higher threshold. So tell us about the current study um, that you uh, did as a survey and what was included in the survey, who did you question, uh, and how did you we, do we, this? We make uh, the decision to that do the uh, a survey uh, on stated practice in uh, 2010 uh, because we want to compare what was uh, the stated practice pattern of pediatric intensivists uh, versus what it was in, 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 in under the survey that we complete in 1997. Uh, this was of interest because in 1997, both the TRIC and TRIPIC trial was not published. Well, in 2010, both were published. And the idea was to see if um, uh, respondents um, were ready to uh, uh, apply the results of uh, TRIPQ study in kids. Uh, in, in, uh, uh, so so we, we complete that study and just discovered that, yes, there was a trend, um, uh, but uh, that uh, still there were uh, a lot of um, intensivists that were uh, not ready to uh, apply uh, uh, the recommendation, for example, of the and the TRIPQ study. What did you include in the survey um, that you did in 2010? Was it different from the survey in 1997? The, the, the big difference was among the respondents in the last survey in year 2010. There were a lot more Americans than 13 years sooner, but that was the only difference. The, uh, we uh, repeat the survey with the same uh, scenario that we used 13 years before. And this was done in purpose because we want really to compare uh, exactly the same scenario. And one of the big uh, points about those scenarios were that uh, there were four scenarios, one case of bronchiolitis, one case of septic shock, one case of trauma, one case of tetralogy of fallow that was repaired. All of them were stable or stabilized patients all of them fulfill the requirement to be enrolled in the TRIPQ study, which means that all of them will have been uh, enrolled in the TRIPQ study. And we will have found uh, in those patients that uh, a threshold of 7 grams per deciliter is as safe as a threshold of 95 grams per deciliter. The, the biggest trend, I think, of the, uh, the, that survey on stated practice pattern of our colleagues in PICU is really that we compare the same scenario just before the trick in the TRIPQ study versus after the TRIPQ study. And uh, there was a trend in, uh, that we found, and a good trend, towards a more restrictive transfusion approach in year 2010 than 13 years later. To give you an example, the res a restrictive strategy was adopted by 50% of respondents in 2010 versus 37 in 1997, with the 
scenario of bronchiolitis. And the same trend was observed with the other scenarios, but the numbers were quite different. In cases of septic shock, even if the patient was stable or stabilized, only 8% in, in 2010 versus 3% in 1997 were ready to uh, wait uh, until the hemoglobin level dropped below 7 grams before giving a red blood cell transfusion. The trend was better for cases of trauma, but not so better with the case of tetralogy of follow. So it, it, seems, it seems to me that the survey that we publish, that will be published in June in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, just showed that we are still reluctant to uh, give less transfusion to cases of se septic shock once stabilized or to cases of a repaired tetralogy of follow, to give you an example. We're, we are ready to do that for a case of bronchiolitis, but not for some patients. Why do you think that is? Well, <laughs> that's a very a great question. Uh, I don't have clear evidence on why it is like that, but there are many possibilities. To give you an example, um, I, I have found repeatedly when I give lectures and when I listen to my colleagues that most of them really do not understand what was meant by the uh, that but what was meant by the uh, stable or stabilized uh, in traffic it's quite clearly uh, reported the definition is that we considered stabilized any patients uh, for whom the mean arterial pressure was not less than two standard deviation below normal mean for age and the cardio their cardiovascular support i mean by that fluids pressure and inotropes has not been increased for at least two hours. Many uh, intensivists miss the point that uh, when we talk about stable or stabilized patients in TRIPQ, we did not consider the respiratory status and the neurological status at all, and uh, actually did not make any difference. So it seems, uh, and frequently people told me, uh, t tell me that TRIPQ is only about threshold hemoglobin level. That's not right. It's about threshold hemoglobin level in stable patients, which makes a big difference. The first question was, is the patient stable? And if it was the case, then we were looking to the hemoglobin uh, concentration. I think it's, uh, one thing that must be done is to explain again and again that TRIPQ is applicable to all critically ill children who are stable uh, unless they uh, will have been excluded from the TRIPQ study. For example, if they have a cyanotic cardiac disease, they will, will have been excluded from the TRIPQ study, so we don't know for those patients. But for cases of trauma, cases of bronchiolitis, cases of, uh, uh, of surgery, there is no justification to give a transfusion if the, uh, the hemoglobin concentration is over 70. There are other reasons probably that explain that uh, the application of traffic U is so slow. Frequently, uh, the generalizability of uh, randomized clinical trials are questioned by readers. They will say, my patient is different. Well, uh, when we look at all subgroups, uh, at, at many subgroups in traffic U, we always find the same trends. It, the, the, the consistency of the results for cases of cardiac surgery, of general surgery, of sepsis, of uh, patients that were more uh, severely ill than others, it, it, we always get the same results. And it, I, it seems to me that this has been missed. And if I have a message, it will be, please, if you, want, if you consider that you cannot apply 
TriPQ, the results of TriPQ study to your patient, show me the evidence that it's the case. And most of the time, they have no evidence to show me that, uh, to, to prove that, they, that their patient is so, so much different than in a TriPQ study. On top of that, we know that there is always some inertia. I'm a, a quite older uh, practitioner now, and I know I will be reluctant to change what I've done for years. Uh, I believe in what I was doing, and decreasing significantly the number of transfusion was quite difficult even for me, and I'm doing research in that field. So probably it's difficult also for uh, my colleagues who are not doing research in that field. And the last barrier is time. We, we know that it takes time to uh, the uh, recommendation from a big RCTs be implemented uh, at the bedside. It takes time because it's not true that everybody can read all their RCTs, that everybody understands what they should do with the, these RCTs, etc. So there is many reasons that can explain why, why we are so slow to uh, apply big randomized clinical trial. I think sometimes there's also a difference between what people say in a survey and what their actual practice is. Yeah. Uh, I frequently quoted uh, Yogi Berra who said, in, in theory, there is no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. <laughs> and, and, and this is so true. <laughs> we complete surveys on stated practice, but we also complete surveys on observed practice in, in North American Pediatric uh, Intensive Care Unit. And uh, again, we found that uh, there was a huge variation and, uh, uh, and that the hemoglobin level that was used was uh, a lot higher than we believe. Uh, to give you an example, there was a, a one PICU uh, a few years ago that told me that they don't want to participate to the TRAPICU study because in their unit, their uh, threshold before transfusion was an hemoglobin of 7 already. So I understand. But uh, some year later, we just checked what was their uh, real threshold, and it was almost 9, uh, nine grams per deciliter. So uh, we believe that we do things, but what we do is frequently different. This means that audits are required in order that the results or the recommendation of a study like the TRAPIQ study uh, are really used and well used. That's another way to improve knowledge translation is to do audits, to find champions in the in, in PICUs. And, well, there, there are a, f a few ways to improve knowledge translation. And, and by the way, presently, uh, the biggest part of my research program is on knowledge translation of the results of the TRIPQ study, just to find how we can accelerate the, this in the forthcoming years. There are those who say that a, uh, a single large RCT um, is not conclusive enough. I, certainly there were plenty of examples in the literature in which a, a single RCT uh, is reported as a positive study and then subsequent trials don't um, replicate the results. Uh, glycemic control being an obvious example that comes to mind. Um, what other uh, data do we have on transfusion in children? Well, uh, first of all... Uh trick was among adults and TRAPIQ among kids. But one of the justification to do the TRAPIQ study was to see that if a quite different population, we find the same trends as trick, And we did. It was even more similar in TRAPIQ and, and we, uh, I 
believe it was more uh, that the results in, in both arms of the study, uh, the restrictive and the liberal, that they were more similar than TRIC because we were using only pre-storage leukocyte-reduced red blood cells units when we did the TRIPQ. It was not the case with the TRIC study. Since that time, there have been one uh, smaller RCTs done in kids. They found the same trends. That's all. But we, I agree with you, repeatability is very important. You talk about uh, blood glucose control, just talk about uh, activated protein C. There was one big and large RCTs, and thereafter two other RCTs in adults and one in kids just showed that it was not active at all. And I, I still believe that the first positive RCT was just a, a false positive. So uh, in the case of uh, red blood cell transfusion and using a, a lower threshold in stable patients, we have the TRIC study, we have the TRIPQ study, and a few other studies, both in adults and children, that are that just show the same thing. So I truly believe that the evidence is quite solid in stable, in hemodynamically stable uh, patients, both adults and kids. The problem is that we don't have data for unstable patients. We don't have data for kids with a cyanotic cardiac disease. The data with respect, for example, to uh, adults or, or kids with severe cardiac disease are, are not there. So I agree that there is some specific population where we need to do more research projects. But for critically ill patients or, uh, with, who are stable, uh, hemodynamically stable, we don't need more. I don't think so. What about the child with severe ARDS who is difficult to oxygenate uh, and so forth? We just look at that. And uh, giving uh, red blood cells to these patients, uh, uh, we look at the patients in TRIPQ, it, it did not make a difference. If they were stable, if the ARDS is getting worse and worse, that's different. But if they are stable, it did not make a big difference. On the other hand, I'm not saying that we should, we, we, we cannot or it will be a malpractice to give a red blood cell transfusion in those patients. It is not the case. What I'm saying is, probably they don't need it most of the time. Right. I think one of the greatest strengths of the, your current study is that you repeated essentially the same survey that you, uh, rep you had carried out in 1997. I think that that's extremely valuable to um, give us information about what people in our field are doing. Um, you already mentioned the as a potential limitation, it's a slightly different population responding to the survey. There were more Americans in this, in the second survey. Um, how did you decide who you were going to survey, and do you have other limitations in the study? Uh, the decision to make the survey was taken in 1997 uh, because uh, we have a good uh, list of Canadian intensivists and of uh, French-speaking intensivists in the European countries. In 2010, we also have a, a good list of American uh, intensivists because we did that survey with the Pelisi network. So that, that helps a lot. But what is interesting in the last survey in 2010 is that the response that we got from American intensivists was almost similar to the response we get from elsewhere. So it makes no difference. We also check, you know, in 2010, we have a few uh, respondents do all, that also respond to the survey 13 years uh, sooner. 
and their trends were similar to what we have found, found uh, to among all respondents. So uh, th that's quite solid, uh, I think. That, mm -hmm. uh, that, that's our, our, our data. So even if the, the respondents were not exactly the same, the trends are there. And that's the good news, because there are trends. As I told you, the, the uh, threshold hemoglobin level uh, chosen uh, that will uh, bring uh, intensivists to give her a blood cell transfusion in 2010 was uh, uh, lower, a lot, quite significantly lower than it was. And the proportion of respondents who will not give any transfusion was quite significant in 2010, and that was not the case 13 years ago. So uh, there is some knowledge translation, but I still believe we can do better than that. Yes, you mentioned we see. it seems that we've done quite well with for example, children with bronchiolitis, but not so good with the septic shock and with um, congenital heart disease. Do you have suggestions on how we can improve the transfusion practices in those populations? Well, maybe in those specific populations, we need uh, more data, maybe. Uh -huh. For example, for cases with septic shock, we don't have too much data in children. Uh, we have a subgroup of patients. I think there was something like what on 125 septic patients in TriPQ. Uh, we report this subgroup analysis in, in pediatric critical care medicine also, and uh, there was no difference. But the sample size is not so big, so maybe we must uh, look a bit further to the, that population. The same holds true for uh, cardiac patients, but uh, uh, at least one study done by Cholette just show again that probably uh, children who come back from the operating room after a cardiac surgery don't need so much transfusion. The number are small. I, I believe we need more uh, research on that field, but we have enough data to uh, support uh, the execution of an RCT in those populations, I believe. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? Yes. Uh, I work on this question for years. I'm quite proud by the fact that there was a great support from the uh, uh, American, Canadian, and European community to this research project, and also to uh, the translation uh, of the recommendation uh, of TRIPQ, for example, uh, uh, in their own units. The question is how to do that, but uh, 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 intensivists are, uh, pediatric intensivists are just looking to improve what they are doing and to understand a little bit better to um, what they should do to their patients. They, they, mm -hmm. they, I, I have uh, experienced such excitement every time I meet with colleagues, for example, with the Palisy Network or my colleagues in Europe. And uh, uh, I believe research uh, w already make a difference, but will make a big difference. Just remember that I start to do to work in pediatric in the, the pediatric intensive care unit of St. Justin Hospital in 1980. And the mortality rate at that time was 36%. I was told by Carol Nicholson that in the same year in USA, the mortality rate in PIC was 36% too. Well, presently, it's, uh, our mortality rate is lower than 4%. I think research and intensivists are doing a great job. We have been talking with Dr. Jacques Lacroix from Saint-Justine Hospital in Montreal, Quebec, about his paper, Survey on Stated Transfusion Practices in Pediatric Intensive Care Units, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in June 2014. 
Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Members receive discounts on all SCCM educational programs and resources. Please ask to speak to a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org slash membership for more information. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.